Please listen now to a vehemenized version. Why you laugh? I haven't even said anything yet. Of Luke chapter 2. And there were in the same city of Nassau, a family abiding in the living room, keeping watch over their stockings by night. And lo, Santa Claus came upon them, and the glory of his red suit shone round about them. And they were very much afraid. And Santa Claus said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good tidings of great joy, which shall be to all Bahamians who can afford them. For unto you is given this day in the city of Nassau great feasts of turkey, ham, kong salad, peas and rice, mashed potatoes. Huh? This is my list now, isn't your list? <laughs> and many presents. And this shall be a sign unto you. You shall find the presents wrapped in bright expensive paper lying beneath the tree adorned with tinsel and colored lights. And suddenly there was with this Bahamian family a multitude of relatives from all the islands praising Santa and saying, Glory to Santa in his sleigh and on earth many presents to all wealthy persons. And it came to pass, as the relatives and friends were gone away from them into their home, the family said one to another, Let us now go even unto bed, and forget this thing which has come to pass, which Santa Claus has made known unto us. And they went away and found their rollades lying in the medicine cabinet. And when they had taken their rollades, they made known abroad the saying which had been told them concerning the presence. And all they, and all they that heard it wondered at those things which were told them by the family. But the mother kept all the wrapping paper and saved it for the next year. And the family returned, glorifying and praising Santa, but ready to take another dose of rollades for all the things they had eaten and the presents they had seen as it was told unto them. That's a Bahamian Christmas. Now I'm sure you'll agree that this power phrase, if you want, this power phrase analogy, of the Christmas story is more true to life than many of us would like to admit. This is how many Bahamians will celebrate Christmas with this kind of attitude and approach, even Christians. Now, of course, it misses the entire point, or as we like to say, it misses the reason for the season. But I say again, sad to say, many families go through the same experience year after year, celebrating the birthday of someone they don't even know personally. Or if they do, they've forgotten who he really is. It's like the department store clerk speaking to a woman 
who's checking out a large amount of Christmas presents. Wow, he said to her, you must have a lot of friends. The lady said, I certainly do. I've got too many friends and relatives. And it's real hard on the pocketbook. Not only that, this is Christmas, but I have at least five of my family who has a birthday on Christmas. And so I've got to buy two presents for them. The fellow looked at him and said, boy, you really got a tough one. I'm glad I don't know anyone who was born on Christmas Day. Do you know anyone who was born on Christmas Day? I certainly do, and I'm sure that most of you do as well. But still I say that a typical Bahamian Christmas has become a tinsel substitute for the true expression and significance of the birth of Christ. A wrong emphasis upon the human and natural elements of this tremendous event has caused us to lose sight of the divine, the supernatural dimensions of this awesome event that we celebrate this time of the year. Now this morning I would like to focus on perhaps just two of these supernatural and divine events to give us an idea of the divine perspective, the divine dimension of what we call Christmas. Now, I don't want to sound dreary, or I don't want to be a, what do they call it, a party pooper, party pooper, or anything like that. But this is the birthday of the king, isn't it? It's not your birthday, it's not my birthday that we're celebrating, it's the birthday of a king. We should celebrate it as such. And that's our desire, of course. You see, if we don't, then we are living like those who don't know anyone who was born on Christmas Day. Now please listen carefully to what I'm going to say. Don't take it out of context. Please don't leave here and say I'm preaching heresy. I know you've said it before, but please don't say it this time of the year. All right? So listen carefully to what I'm going to say. Setting a stage, as it were, for the message. I want you to know that God really knows how to cover his tracks as well as to how to stick it to you. God knows how to cover his tracks and he knows how to stick it to you. Perhaps we could change that if that sounds a little gross and say, I believe God has a sense of humor even when it comes to redemption. The very fact that, the fact that we can celebrate what Christmas is supposed to celebrate proves this to be the case. In other words, if Jesus did not have these characteristics, we would not be celebrating Christmas. 
if he didn't have this ability to cover his tracks, if he didn't have the ability to laugh at his enemies, we wouldn't be celebrating Christmas. If he didn't have the ability to fool, to pull one over on his enemies, we wouldn't be celebrating Christmas today. You see, Christmas is just not a natural event, an ordinary event. It is something unusual, unique. Now, we don't celebrate Christmas like that. We do the same thing every year. Try to find the cheapest gift to give to the many people that we know. Because we've got so many of them to give. And we go through the same motions, doing the same thing every year, and becomes monotonous to many. And if you're honest, you will admit that. Because we go in the way of the world. But our view, our perspective, and our vision of the true meaning of Christmas is humanistic. It is self-centered. It is materialistic. And because of this, we very easily overlook the cosmic dimension of the birth of Christ, the incarnation. We lose the divine dimension of why it happened in the first place and how it came about in the first place. In other words, to be a little theological here, because we have a theological fellow in the audience today, and i got to make sure I feed him as well. We approach Christmas from an anthropological perspective. Man-centered rather than a theocentric perspective, God-centered. I want to say to you, Christmas is not primarily concerned with man. Christmas is primarily concerned with God. But we replace us with him when it comes to that. And I want us to take a look at some of the scriptures that shows this to be the case. For instance, we think of material gifts wrapped in pretty paper when it comes to Christmas. But God thinks of a divine gift wrapped in human flesh. That's quite a contrast, isn't it? We think of fun and parties. God thinks of pain and humiliation. We think of earth alone. God thinks not only of heaven and earth, but the universe. We think of what is material and temporal. God thinks of what is spiritual and eternal. When it comes to Christmas, our perspective is far apart from God as heaven is above the earth. And so when it comes to Christmas, I say, and what went into the plan that made it possible, our thoughts are so far apart from God, it's sad to say the least. And yet, we as professing Christians seem to make no effort to change our focus, our vision, our perspective when it comes to Christmas. No attempt. 
We just jump in the river and we go with the flow of the world. No attempt. And it doesn't bother us. You see, that's, that's the problem. It doesn't bother us. Just go ahead. Just go along with it. It's like because of so much things on TV, violence and immorality and all of that. Violence don't seem to trouble too many people. Immorality don't seem, homosexual don't seem to trouble too many people today. That's how Christians relate to Christmas. For instance, when we think of Christmas, we immediately think of Bethlehem and a barn or a cave. But God thinks of a snake in a garden. Because that's where Christmas really began. That's where it began with our four parents in a garden and a snake. Adam and Eve rebelled against God's sovereign rule and gave their allegiance to his angelic usurper, usurper called Lucifer, a.k.a. the devil, Satan, the dragon. This is the background for Christmas. And I'm not going to look too. Here is the beginning of Christmas. Genesis chapter 3. Then the Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? This is after they had sinned and rebelled against God, of course. And the woman said, Well, look at this. The woman is our mama. All right? This is where we got our genes from. And the man is our papa. All right? This is where we get our DNA from here. The Lord God said to the woman, What is this you have done? And the woman said, The serpent deceived me and I ate. The Lord said to the serpent, Because you have done this, cursed are you more than all cattle and more than every beast of the field. On your belly you will go and dust you will eat all the days of your life. And I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. Notice his words now. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. This is an amazing revelation. This is a startling revelation here. This is the first prophecy concerning Christmas. This is the first prophecy concerning the coming of Christ, God's champion. And notice, it was given to the devil. It was given to Lucifer. It was given to Satan. It was given to the dragon. The first promise of Christmas was given to the devil. That in itself tells us about the nature of Christmas and what God was setting up. It's war, man. This is war. 
Last year, two years ago, Bill O'Reilly and those were fighting about whether there was a war on Christmas. Yes, but the war started in the Garden of Eden. This was God's promise to provide, not only to provide deliverance from the curse of sin, but perhaps even more important when we see the cosmic plan of God to restore God's kingdom to its rightful ruler by a coming champion who would be born from the seed of the woman. This is an amazing prophet. This is a startling thing here. This is awesome. And so the seed of the woman champion will once and for all destroy the one who dared to attempt to challenge the right of the triune God to rule over both the heavenly and divine kingdom. He himself had made and established a kingdom, a spiritual kingdom. And he had made this beautiful creature, the most perfect being to be created, and placed him as the guardian of his holiness. But he rebelled. And God says, in my plan, I'm going to provide a champion on my behalf to fight you. To fight you. That's why Christmas was originated. For God to produce a champion who would take on his enemy called the devil. This war would be fought on behalf of him by the seed of the woman. And that's a strange term to say to lead the seed of the woman. You never looked at a seed that's coming from the woman. It's always came from the man. So that itself starts to tell you right away, hey, there's something different about this deliverer, this champion, this birth that is to occur. Something's different. The seed of the woman. That's a strange term. Now who's the seed? Well, just to get right to it, let's go to Galatians 3, verse 16. Paul tells us exactly who the seed is. It says, I'm trying to condense this message this morning because so much is here. This is why we're going directly to this passage. Don't laugh. This is a condensed message. Verse 16, chapter 3. Now the promises were made, were spoken to Abraham and to his seed. He does not say unto seeds, as referring to many, but rather to one, to your seed, that is Christ. So in the Garden of Eden, God promised his seed. God promised Christ. And he spoke to Abraham, 
he was talking about Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ. That's the seed of the woman. Notice Kiffy now. God himself initiated this war between Satan and his seed. Those who willingly submit to his rule in their lives. And the woman and her seed, who is Jesus Christ. Specifically, there's a war going on. This was therefore the first promise that there would be a Christmas. Now we go to the New Testament, we say, peace on earth! But that peace could only be won through war. It could only be won through war. And that war was to be fought on God's behalf by his champion seed of the woman. Jesus Christ. And so the first promise of Christmas, friends, have to do with God's champion, promised by God who would enter the arena of earth, because that's all earth is. Earth is an arena in which this battle is taking place. God's champion would enter this arena on earth to do battle with the arrogant, prideful usurper we now call the devil, but who is really has a nickname, he named Lucy. Lucy was God's most powerful, beautiful creature. That's the enemy that Christ would face. But now here is the thing. Now God gave this warning to Satan. Didn't give it directly to Adam or to Eve. He gave it to Satan. It was a warning. I've come after you. Get ready. And Satan started to get ready from the moment that prophecy was given. Right from the moment that prediction and promise to send this deliverer, the seed would be born, he started to put in plan a strategy to prevent him from being born. He didn't want Christmas to happen. Lucy wasn't looking forward to Christmas. You couldn't sing that, Christmas coming, Christmas coming, Lucy. He didn't want that. He did everything to prevent Christmas from happening. He said, how do I know this? Well, let me give you God's perspective of Christmas Day. From a prophetic, cosmic perspective. For this you have to turn with me to Revelation chapter 12, verse 1. A great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, and the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of twelve stars. Now we're not going to go into all these details, just getting the meat of this. Verse 2, and she was with child. Now no matter what approach you might take at this, this child was Jesus. Whether you want to look at the woman as Israel or Mary, the child was Israel. And even if it refers to Israel, it still refers to Mary as an Israelite. She was with child and she cried out, being in labor 
and in pain to give birth. Now, when you go to the New Testament, you don't hear this. All you hear is silent night. All is calm. Is it right? But here's what was really happening from the spiritual divine perspective. She was in pain. Then another sign appeared in heaven. And behold, look at it, a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns. Is this a great Christmas story? Notice he read. It's a red dragon. So watch out who you led down that chimney. <laughs> a great red dragon having seven heads and ten horns, and on its heads were seven diadems. And his tail swept away a third of the stars of heaven and threw them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman. Notice now, the dragon stood before the woman who was crying out in labor. So that when she gave birth, he might devour the child. This is the divine dimension of Christmas. This is the rest of the story. This is the story you don't hear. The red dragon waiting to pounce on that little baby as he's been born. No crying he makes, it says. But his mother certainly cried because she knew what she was about to face. This then is what I call the cosmic view of Christmas. Have you got this picture? It's amazing how many Christians would go all their lives and know nothing about this aspect of Christmas at all. All they know about is a little baby wrapped in Christmas paper. There was a war, and now the champion has been born, and the enemy was waiting to pounce on him right from the very beginning. Listen, friends, Satan has always been waiting to sidetrack the plan of God to provide this seed that would destroy him. It began in the garden and has continued throughout history. In fact, the whole Old Testament is about this. Satan trying to corrupt the seed. The whole thing. Satan trying to get in. So that seed would not be pure, it would not be a perfect seed. He's trying all kinds of things. Now most of you know, the line of David, the house of David was to be the major, couldn't do it if you want, to produce the promised seed. In other words, it's coming to the Davidic line. And that's why Satan attacked that line. David's lineage was always a focus of attack for the devil, trying to ruin them from fitting into God's plan the way God wanted it. You see, the kings came from the Davidic line, and Jesus 
was born to be a king. You see, if Satan could destroy the line, corrupt the line, the seed could not be born. Who would destroy him? And Satan knew that. In other words, if he could corrupt the line, Christmas wouldn't come. That's what you got to see here. When you read all of the history, you know, that's it. Christmas. Satan trying to prevent it and God trying to make it happen. Now you remember the story. The kingdom of Israel is divided into two, you remember, north and south. The northern kings went from bad to worse and eventually they ceased to exist as a nation. The kings of the southern kingdoms are a little better but still terrible. The kingdom of Judah, through which the Davidic line ran, eventually began to go into decline itself, moral decline. In fact, one king in the Davidic line was so immoral, so evil, that God himself was finally motivated to pronounce a curse on the entire line of David. Remember now, don't lose this because we only have a short time. The seed was to come through this line. The devil could corrupt the seed. Christmas wouldn't happen. And so the devil succeeded in causing king after king in this Davidic line to become immoral, to become corrupt. And one became so terrible, God put a curse on the entire line. Now I want you to see the significance of this. Let me read it first, and then you'll see the significance of this. In Jeremiah chapter 22. As I live, declares the Lord, even though Kaniah, actually another name for him is Jeconiah, his father's name was Jehoiah Kim, one was in and one was in. Even though Kaniah, the son of Jehoiah Kim, king of Judah, was a signet ring on my right hand, that's a favorite position, place of power, prestige, yet I would pull you off. And I will give you over into the hand of those who are seeking your life. Yes, into the hand of those you dread, even the hand of Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, and into the hand of the Chaldeans. Now, he is saying this to one of his appointed kings, a favorite. But he became immoral. Satan succeeded in corrupting him. I will hurl you and your mother who bore you into another country. Where you were not born, and there you will die. But as for the land to which they desire to return, they will not return to it. Is this man, Kaniah, a despised shattered jaw? The answer, of course, is yes. Or is he an undesirable vessel? Yes. Why have he and his descendants been hurled out and cast into a land that they had not known? Oh land, oh land, hear the word of the Lord. I want you to see God's passion in this. This king, the one he highly favored before, the one who was one of the primary 
kings in the line that the Messiah would come had gone astray, has abandoned, rejected God, rebelled against him. And now God is passionate. Oh, land, oh, land, he says. Hear my word. Thus says the Lord, write this man down childless. A man who will not prosper in his days. For no man of his descendants will prosper sitting on the throne of David or ruling again in Judah. Now listen, if you know what is being said here, this is a startling thing. In fact, this is an utterly, un, this is a, an amazing, an unexpected thing that God does here. God seems to himself to throw a monkey wrench into his plan to bring his champion. The champion is coming through the Davidic line. Because of the sin of this king in the Davidic line to whom the champion was coming, God curses his line and says, none of them will reign. Now the big question of course is what? How will the Messiah be born? Put it now, words today, will there be a Christmas? How can Christmas come if the one who's responsible for making it happen, one of them, is rebelled against God? This is an amazing event here. A blood curse is placed on the bloodline of David by God himself. How could this be, how could this be in view of his plan to produce the seed through the Davidic line? If he's going to cut it off from this point. It appears that God himself has blocked the means by which his champion seed was to come into the world and destroy the works of the devil. It seems as though the plan was stopped by God himself. Now, if ever there was a time, I believe that Lucy was jumping up and down was now. He said, I did it. I did it. I made God so mad because of how I corrupted this one that he forgot about the line and he cursed it. And now, boop, plan, finish. I wonder what's plan B. And you can see Lucy and all these people dancing. Rejoicing. God himself seemed to have messed up his own plan. Satan, I believe, was dancing with glee. But you know what? God is right in the shadows on the sideline. They probably laughing at him. <laughs> he said, Boy, I got you. I got you. Lucy, have I got a plan? Have I got a surprise for you? I can stick it to you. You think I messed up? You think I goofed up? You think there's a loophole? I'm going to fill that loophole. So he makes an announcement. And this is a, and when we read this passage, we normally don't connect it to what we just talked about. We just jump right in. Isaiah 7, verse 10. Then the Lord spoke again to Ahaz, saying, Ask a sign for yourself from the Lord your God. Make it deeper, Sheol, or high as heaven. But Ahaz said, I will not ask, nor will I test the Lord. Then he said, Listen now, O house of David. Is it too slight a thing for you? To try the patience of man, that you will try the patience of my God as well. Therefore, 
the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with a child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel, God in the flesh. God in the flesh. Now, you heard one strange term, the seed of a woman. Now you hear another strange term, a virgin birth. I mean, where's God getting these crazy things from? I want you to see all of this is wrapped up with Christmas. This is God's divine cosmic plan here. A virgin birth. Wow. What a double whammy that God puts on Lucy. God's answer to the blood curse of the Davidic line is the virgin birth. You see the connection here? God's answer to the curse he put on the Davidic line that seemed to cut it short was the virgin birth. The seed of the woman, not the seed of the man. If eventually the seed of the man, you'd be under the curse. So God introduces something no one had ever heard of before. Not only the seed of the woman, but a virgin birth. Man! Don't let me, I, I got goose pimples over me. That's God acting now out his plan to bring this champion into the world, to bring about the first Christmas. God is going to fix the apparent loophole in the now cursed Davidic line to the virgin birth. He's not going to bypass that line at all. He's simply going to take another route to get to the same destiny. That's God. Now, you got to move fast. Because this is the introduction of the message. Let's move ahead to the New Testament. This, the Gospels and see how this all worked out. And I'm just going to give you a summary again because of time. When you go to Matthew, the Gospel of Matthew, you know all the genealogy. Matthew presents Jesus as the king of the Jews. He traces his line. Mark presents Jesus as a suffering servant. He traces his line as a man. Luke presents Jesus as the son of man. He's focusing on his humanity. John presents Jesus as the son of God. Focusing on his deity. Mark does not give a genealogy. Why? Because a servant doesn't have one. John does not have an earthly genealogy, but a heavenly one. He has an eternal one. Jesus is presented as the Word who was with God and who is God. Matthew starts with Abraham, the genealogy. Who is Abraham? The first Jew. God all, Matthew goes all the way from Abraham through to Joseph, the legal father of Jesus Christ, the legal. And he had that legal claim to the house of David. Luke, who is a Greek, starts with Joseph and goes back to Adam, who was the first man. He follows down through Abraham to David, the same as in Matthew. I know this is confusing, but that's all right. When he reaches David, though, he tracks, he tracks Jesus' genealogy not through Solomon, who was the heir to the royal throne, but he, chases, he, he, chase, he traces it through Nathan, 
another son of David who was not. And he goes down to Heli, who is the father of Mary, the father-in-law of Joseph. Why did he do this? To show first that Jesus has two avenues of claim to the Davidic throne. Legally has it through the royal line, but not the seed line which was under the curse of God to Jehovah, through Jehovah Kim. But rather he traces it through Nathan, David's other son, who was not under the curse of Jehovah Kim. And so Jesus is in the bloodline of David in spite of the curse. That's how God, that's how God filled in the loophole of that curse line. That's was the reason for the virgin birth. That's the necessity of the virgin birth. Jesus had to be born like this in order to escape a curse that God himself had put on the line. This is an amazing thing. Now, of course, some bring up the argument that in the Jewish culture, inheritance never went through the woman. To say, and that was true. In fact, I think that is true for a little while in the Bahamas as well. But it never, it never went. Now, God had to do something about that. Otherwise, he'd be going against the laws he himself helped Moses to put in place about inheritance in the land. Quickly. See how fast I am? God puts another plan in action that is like a broadside to Satan. God never leaves loopholes, even a legal one. He, don't leave, he doesn't leave a genealogy, a genealogical loophole, neither does he leave a legal loophole. And the way God worked this out even, Brian Marie, is he here? No. Couldn't beat this one. He couldn't defend this one successfully. Listen to this. Then the daughters of Zilph, I can never pronounce this. Zilph he had, the son of Hepha, the son of Gilead, the son of Maka, the son of Manasseh, of the families of Manasseh, the sons of Joseph, and came on, came on, and so on. Let me give you the story. They were dividing up the land. And going according to customs, they were only giving it to the sons. Well, these, this family only had daughters. So these feminists, I'm saying, <laughs> say, I ain't gonna let that go. No, 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 no. So you went to Moses, say, Moses, now that's just not right. We ain't got no brothers. My dad ain't had no sons, only us. You mean to say that you're not gonna give us a piece of property? That ain't right. So this is where the women first started to fight for this, way back here. And I noticed what happened. Moses said, okay, I can go to the Lord about this one. I can answer this one. I can go to the Lord because God had set these laws in place himself. So he goes to the Lord. Verse 8, then the Lord spoke to Moses saying, the daughters of Zelophehad had are right in their statements. You shall surely give them hereditary possessions among their father's brothers, and you shall transfer the inheritance of their fathers to them. 
You see that? God changed an inheritance law so that Mary would have the legal right to make Jesus a qualified, if you want, Jewish Messiah. He changed the law. God did it in order to make the virgin birth work. Because if he didn't change his law, she wouldn't have any legal right to inherit. Jesus would not be looked upon as someone who has a legal right as a Jewish man. Couldn't be able to do it. So God changed the law hundreds of years before the first Christmas occurred. Because if he didn't, the first Christmas would not have occurred. Do you see why I say this is God's cosmic perspective of Christmas? But yet every year we go around, oh, I wonder what I can get for Christmas this time. One way I can give. I wonder if I should go out to the service today. Well, it's Christmas time. I guess I better go. That's how we face it. In spite of the fact of what God did to make it all possible. To make it possible for his seed of the woman champion to be born. Some of the carols, if you sing it, says he was born in the night. Sing another one, says he was born in the morning. I don't know whether he was born in the morning or born in the night. But I know one thing, he was born. <laughs> so God instituted the law of the primary purpose of having it as a basis for Mary to claim the father's inheritance because Eli had no sons. And thus her son, Jesus, would be the rightful heir to the throne of David. Only God could do something like that. So then why was the virgin birth necessary? It was necessary in order to circumvent the curse God himself had put on the line of David so that Jesus would be qualified to be king of Israel through the seed of the woman according to an inheritance law that he himself changed. So... Here's the rest of the story from Revelation 12 rather than Luke 2, verse 5. And she gave birth to a son, a male child, who is to rule all the nations. And the only way he could do that was because he changed the law. To rule the nations with a rod of iron, and her child was caught up to God and to his throne. Friends, listen. Jesus Christ was born to reign. He was only born to live. He was not only born to die. He was not even born to be raised. He was born to reign. He was born to reign. Christmas was about bringing the King of kings and the Lord of lords into the world. And so I say to you, as we close, Christmas for the Christian should be a time of celebration of the incarnation of Jesus Christ. This superbly awesome event by which God brought his promised seed and champion into the world to restore his kingdom to himself. Christmas, I say, is therefore more about God than it is about us. 
Jesus was born, as I said, not only to live a miraculously perfect life, or to die an absolutely substitutionary sacrificial death, and to be raised by the awesome power of the Father, but also to reign as King of kings and Lord of lords. The war against Christmas has already been won. Jesus is Lord. Jesus was born in Bethlehem as a bona fide heir to David's throne. And one day, he will sit on that throne. That, my friends, is what Christmas is all about. Ladies and gentlemen, let us rise now then to give honor to the birth and reign of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords. Anton, I want you to lead this. If you want to sing as we do this, please do it. But we're going to sing this entire thing through with Anton's song. Please rise then, ladies and gentlemen, as we honor the birth and reign of the King of Kings and Lord of Lords.